in Jeanette, Pennsylvania, about 20 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, an oil and gas company, Eastern Gas Transmission and Storage Incorporated, was engaged in a task of clearing the lines, clearing a pathway of trees and branches. And when it did, a tree fell over and struck an employee, sending him to the hospital with severe injuries requiring surgery. By the end of this 30 minutes, we're going to be able to walk away having some lessons learned that we can apply at the corporations uh, that, that are participating in this program today and, and be able to enrich both our safety and health programs and all, as well provide stronger defenses in the event that uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration issues a citation similar to the one in the Eastern Gas Transmission case. We're going to talk about this over the next 30 minutes on this, the December 15th, 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030. So welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. I am an attorney engaged in the practice of law in the field of occupational safety and health law uh, here at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, DC. I'm very fortunate today because I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Taylor Johnson, who is also one of our occupational safety and health attorneys and has been a frequent contributor for a number of years here on the OSHA 3030. Taylor, thank you for joining us today and welcome. Great to be here, Manish. Thank you. And welcome everyone who's participating today. Taylor, I suppose we should start off by talking about what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a great program lined up today. Um, first, we're going to review the, the facts of the case uh, in the Eastern Gas uh, case that Manish was describing earlier. Um, and this case focuses around the general duty clause. So we'll provide sort of a, you know, a brief overview of the general duty clause, and then we'll get into the elements more as we discuss um, some of the arguments and the, the ALJ's decision in this case. Uh, we'll get into a discussion of reasonable foreseeability under the general duty clause, the, you know, one of the, the, the topic of today's program. And we're also going to unpack one of the arguments uh, by the employer in this case, uh, that industry standards do not apply to non-industry participants. Um, so so we'll, uh, we'll delve into that a little bit. And we will also, as always, uh, wrap up with uh, what employers should do and some practical takeaways moving forward. And, uh, you know, Manus, there are just some, some really interesting facts in today's case, I think. There are. And, and one more thing that we should mention now, after the program, we are going to uh, go off the record. This is a recorded event uh, for the purpose of reposting it as a podcast as well as on YouTube on our website. And after the program, we're going to go off the record, turn off all the recordings, and just for our live audience, we'll tackle some questions and answers. And in our email announcements for this program, we always give an opportunity to pre-submit questions. We've received a few, and we think they're very relevant, so I'm looking forward to that second section as well. So why don't we, Taylor, when we get into starting off with the facts of the case. So this occurs, as I said, near Jeanette, Pennsylvania, southeast of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a gas transmission uh, company, Eastern Gas Transmission and Storage Incorporated. Uh, part of their duty in order to gain access to their own storage sites, their own transmission lines, and to protect the transmission lines from interference from trees, roots, et cetera, is to clear their pathways, to clear their lines. And that line clearing activity is essentially a function of maintaining the, the land and make, uh, that the line goes along and make, making sure that it's free of trees, branches, et cetera. 
so that uh, not only are the pipes protected, but vehicles, service vehicles can, can pass through unobstructed. So, so their main, as I just mentioned, their main function is gas transmission, gas storage services. But, but this is a sort of preliminary or prerequisite task in, or ancillary task that's necessary as part of their main operations. With that said, uh, Eastern Gas states that its employees are who engage in tree clearing are trained on proper tree felling procedures. Well, it so happened that in January of 2020, two employees started off in the morning with the assignment to remove some dead ash trees from, from the pathway. Ash trees are apparently notorious in the industry for, for being particularly uh, dangerous uh, to manage because they, they are more brittle when dead and tend to snap and fall more unpredictably. Uh, with that said, these two employees, they set out for the job site that they were assigned to. Uh, one of them took a bobcat and they proceeded to attack a small section with trees. And one, the, the, remember there were two employees, one walks up to the top of a hill, another in the bobcat begins pushing against a dead tree to topple it. Uh, the tree falls as intended, and it continues to fall in the direction towards the top of the hill, and it strikes the coworker on the head. He, he falls, they rescue him, they take him to the hospital. His injuries were severe, required uh, several days hospitalization and surgery. And the employer, because of the hospitalization, uh, self-reported to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Recollect at this point, uh, as we've talked about in several episodes of the OSHA 3030, that, that there's a separate and distinct duty on the part of the employer to notify uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration immediately or promptly is the term that's used in the event of fatality and within 24 hours in the event of a hospitalization or other catastrophe associated with uh, amputations, inoculations, et cetera. So the employer notified the Occupational Safety and Health Administration on the day of the incident, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration sent out a compliance safety and health officer. Uh, the compliance officer arrived at the following day and conducted an investigation. And the investigation in part included an interview of, of uh, the two employees in question. That's right, Manish. And, uh, you know, the investigator at the conclusion um, of, of interviewing, you know, both the employee operating the Bobcat as well as the employee who was struck by the tree, um, you know, Eastern Gas was cited for two hazards under the general duty clause. Um, the first was, you know, specific to the employee who was struck with the tree. And that was that the employee was exposed to falling objects and crush injuries while removing dead tree limbs. And then the second, um, you know, citation was specific to the employee in the Bobcat. And so here it was that that employee was exposed to falling objects and crush injuries while, while using the excavator. Uh, both citations were classified as serious, and the secretary issued a grouped penalty of $13,494, uh, which was the max penalty at the time. And this penalty structure, by the way, is a subject of congressional uh, uh, a proposed bill in Congress that, that could witness a substantial upward revision to these these capped figures. But Taylor, as you point out, the, the maximum at that point was 13,494, and that was what was issued to the employer. 
And the the citation in question that we want to discuss is that it falls under the general duty clause. The, the general that's very honest. And this is found in section five of the OSH Act. Um, specifically, the general duty clause states that each employer shall furnish to, uh, to, uh, to each of his employees uh, employment and a place of employment which are free from recognized hazards uh, that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm. And so we've broken down um, these, you know, that, that uh, text there into four distinct elements. Um, and so, you know, we, we have them listed out here. The first, that the employee must have been exposed to a hazard. Um, so here, you know, the danger trees, you know, the, the ash trees that Manish was describing would be, you know, the, the uh, exposing to a hazard element. Um, most importantly, for the purpose of this case, and what Manish is going to go into greater detail later on, is the alleged hazard must be recognized. Um, you know, one of the main arguments put forth by Eastern Gas in this case was actually that, you know, the alleged hazard was not recognized because it was not reasonably foreseeable. So we'll get into that. Um, the third element is that the alleged hazard caused or was likely to cause a death or serious physical harm. Um, so here, you know, the, the, the piece of the tree, actually not even the entire tree, but the piece that fell off was 390 pounds. Um, so certainly, um, you know, likely to cause death or serious physical harm. And then finally, uh, that a feasible method exists to correct the alleged hazard. Um, and so as we'll get into um, one of the arguments that, um, you know, the secretary and, and eventually the ALJ, um, you know, agrees with is that a failure to follow um, particular standards, um, that following those standards could have, uh, you know, met this requirement for a feasible method to correct the alleged hazard. Which puts a significant burden on the employer to make sure that they're aware of not just occupational safety and health administration regulations or standards, but also these consensus organization type standards like ANSI standards. So, so you talked about, Taylor, the question of uh, the, that second element that OSHA has to establish when asserting a general duty clause violation, this idea that the alleged hazard has to be one that's either specifically recognized by the employer or generally recognized by the industry in which the employers uh, participates. And the employer here, Eastern Gas, argued that the idea that a tree can fall unexpectedly, that a branch could snap off, is inherently unpredictable. And there has to be, to, to, for OSHA to be able to establish that the hazard is recognized by the company or by the industry, that the agency has to be able to show that there's some reasonable foreseeability that the hazard could possibly occur. But branches snapping off is inherently unforeseeable, Eastern argued. When we look at the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration's field manual, which is an important, I think, source in developing uh, an argument, structuring an argument to defend an employer, uh, OSHA has stated that a hazard for which a citation is issued has to be reasonably foreseeable. OSHA should not issue citations, the uh, field manual says, in the event that the hazard in question is inherently unforeseeable. Uh, what we have here, however, is a inherently uh, unpredictable event, like a branch falling, uh, as to when it might happen. But overall, the review commission held, there is this general expectation that when you're engaged in line clearing, sometimes branches will snap off, sometimes a tree will fall onto another tree, which will in turn get pushed down or lose limbs. And so generally speaking, the question of whether or not a specific event could happen 
is reasonably foreseeable to happen in general when engaged in this activity is the standard by which the review commission should examine these kinds of arguments, the review commission said in this case. Here, it's interesting because the, the question uh, of whether or not there was a generally foreseeable uh, possibility of branches falling was, was well established even by evidence uh, supplied by Eastern Gas. Ash trees are notoriously more prone to this kind of hazard. Uh, and, and specifically trees that have been identified for removal uh, and have that uh, uh, necessarily they're, they're uh, dead trees or trees with dead branches. They, they are danger trees as referred to in the industry and they necessarily contain within them a higher degree of risk of precisely this kind of phenomenon. And that is well recognized in the industry, the possibility of an elevated risk of this kind of uh, event ensuing from the knockdown activity that the employees were engaged in uh, is, is well, well accepted by the industry. Well, with that said, uh, Taylor, I think it's, uh, it's important to, to discuss the question of reasonable foreseeability, uh, specifically as Eastern Gas saw it at the time they're engaged in this activity. They believed that that specific event was sort of a freak of nature, and th there's no way that the two employees could have could have predicted this. The administrative law judge, when reviewing this, came to the conclusion that uh, that Eastern Gas, in fact, knew that those trees were specifically dangerous, and pointed to Eastern Gas's own uh, training material and the fact that they trained uh, employees on that hazard as evidence that there was. Uh, uh, awareness by Eastern Gas uh, of the re of, of the foreseeability of of a tree falling or a branch falling while conducting these these kinds of tasks. That's right, Manish. And you know, one of the other arguments um, that Eastern Gas makes in this case is that those training materials that you were just referencing, um, you know, they, they reference a specific uh, ANSI standard, you know, ANSI standard Z113, uh, which contains safety standards uh, for for the arborist industry. And they argue that those shouldn't should not have been considered evidence of hazard recognition um, because they're not in the arborist industry. Um, and you know that the ALJ, you know, in response to this argument, uh, stated that just because Eastern Gas was primarily in the gas industry, you know, and that and that clearing lines and felling trees was just an ancillary part of their business, uh, that that does not mean that they are exempt from adhering to the industry standard. You know, essentially, you know, felling a tree is felling a tree, regardless of the industry, you know, the danger remains the same. Um, so this, this argument put forth by Eastern Gas in this case that, you know, industry standards, um, you know, only, only apply, you know, don't apply to non-industry participants um, was rejected by the ALJ. Um, and, and eventually, you know, with respect to this point of the, you know, the applicability and, and the rec recognition of the hazard, um, you know, the secretary, the ALJ held that the secretary had proved that uh, both Eastern Gas and, you know, the general industry um, had recognized uh, that this hazard existed. Yeah, that's right. The, the fact that Eastern Gas had conducted training on this point, the ALJ said that was evidence that the company specifically had recognized this as a possible hazard. And the fact that the ANSI standards talked to precisely this kind of hazard and how to address it, how to properly position employees who are uh, in the area uh, demonstrates that the industry for tree felling practices would have recognized a well-established 
uh, uh, fact, uh, well-established evidence that, that the industry had recognized this as a possible hazard. So with that said, you know, there's a, there's a diagram that uh, suggests where the zones of danger are for employees not to stand, where are the safety zones. There are multiple ways of representing this, but the, the concept is the same. Uh, and in any event, even though the zone of danger includes areas to the immediate left and right of the tree, uh, with respect to the vector by which the person in the bobcat was knocking down, and that the person in the bobcat is also in the zone of danger. Nevertheless, one thing that I think anyone can clearly agree on is that the direction that the bobcat was pushing the tree to fall, the intended direction of falling, is clearly the most dangerous vector to be standing in. And that's precisely where this employee was standing up on a hill. There's another uh, accepted practice, and that is to stand at a distance that is at least one and a half to preferably two times the height of the tree. And so that even if radially speaking, the employee was in one of the arcs that are defined as a zone of danger, nevertheless, the tree might fall short of the employee have, had they observed that two times the height of the tree radial limit. And this employee was well inside of one and a half times the height of the tree. And this is important because this is a well-accepted practice or means of safely positioning coworkers while this kind of activity is going on. Uh, what's interesting is this employee was standing in the wrong place in plain uh, view of the Bobcat operator. And so Eastern Gas in its defenses originally when it filed an answer alleged that this was an example of employee misconduct. They've been told not to do that, and the employee did so anyways. However, when the parties went to their hearing before the administrative law judge, the evidence did not support the idea that the employees were engaged in unpreventable employee misconduct. Unpreventable employee misconduct is a specific affirmative defense, and, and it's a very difficult one to establish. So before pleading it, I think a lot of evidence has to be gathered that might support that defense. For one, the employer has done a good job of training, has first of all established a rule. And then uh, the employer has to have established that the uh, rule was, was trained to effectively or communicated effectively to the, to the work uh, force. Then the employees had some, some method of complying with the rule and that there was monitoring and uh, supervision to make sure that there was compliance with the rule. Finally, the employer would have to establish that the employee um, in, engaged in, that employees in the past or that employee has, has been subjected to disciplinary action in the event of a violation and that it wasn't merely a rule that if broken received a uh, reminder or a slap on the wrist. So, so this is a difficult defense to to present at a hearing, and that evidence did not show up at the hearing to support the affirmative, uh, the affirmative defense of an unpreventable employee misconduct. Uh, moreover, the parties were asked to file post-hearing briefs to the administrative law judge, and this argument, though raised in the initial answer, was not expounded upon in the post-hearing brief by Eastern Gas. 
And I think that that omission, essentially, the administrative law judge in a footnote noted, constituted an abandonment of that def the defense. They'd said because it wasn't raised in the hearing or in the post-hearing brief, Eastern Gas appears to have abandoned that defense. That's an important point, and it's very likely that Eastern Gas made a deliberate and intentional decision not to proceed with that defense, pro provided perhaps that they didn't have the evidence to support it upon further inquiry. So, so now we come to the administrative law judge's decision. We've heard all of the arguments by now from Eastern Gas. We've heard all of the arguments from the Commissioner Safety and Health Administration. And we've heard a little bit about the hearing and the evidence that did or did not show up at the hearing. Taylor, the administrative law judge's decision, I think was interesting. Yeah, um, so, you know, in summary, you know, the ALJ upholds the penalty in this case and does rule in favor of OSHA. Um, you know, the secretary, the ALJ held, hold that the, the secretary established um, that Eastern Gas's actual and constructive knowledge um, of the violative conditions, you know, was, was established. Um, that removing dangerous trees, essentially, was a routine part of the employee's task at Eastern Gas. And that Eastern Gas's own training materials, um, you know, acknowledge the hazards associated um, with, with this, this danger, the danger of, of felling trees. And so eventually the ALJ concludes that the secretary was able to prove all of the four distinct elements of the general duty clause uh, that we unpacked for you earlier, um, that there was a hazard, the employee was exposed, um, it was recognized in Eastern Gas's training materials, and finally that adhering to those ANSI standards that were listed in the training materials um, could have successfully abated the hazard. And so both citations were affirmed. Eastern Gas was ordered to pay the full 13,494 max penalty. And um, the employer appealed this case uh, to, the, to the full review commission. And that case is pending review. Um, so, there, so there will be you know, an, another part of the story to tell. Um, you know, stay tuned for that. But, but that's, where, that's where we're at at this moment. Taylor, I think this is the kind of case that's so interesting that if it gets heard by the review commission and a decision is issued by the review commission that we'd probably raise this as a subject or the topic of another OSHA 3030 yeah. at that point. Right. Uh, and for those of you who missed it last month was our hundredth episode of the uh, OSHA 3030. And our special guest was one of the commissioners of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, uh, Amanda Lihau. And it was a terrific opportunity to gain insight into the minds and views of uh, the commissioners who sit at the review commission, the three person bench that hears at an appellate review level the the all of the cases that come from administrative law judges that are up for review by the review commission uh, so that was a great program it's on our website khlaw.com if you want to rehear it or it might be if you've subscribed to uh, the OSHA 3030s a podcast it might already be on your phone uh, so check that one out if you haven't yet well Taylor I think that this case was compelling even at the administrative law judge uh, level and I think that as a consequence, there's a number of practical takeaway items that members of our OSHA 3030 community can go back to their workplaces and implement uh, to, to strengthen their programs. I think the first that you pointed out was uh, that the affirmative defense uh, of, in this case, of unpreventable employment misconduct uh, was raised in the answer, which is called the pleading stage, but it was not addressed at trial and it was not addressed in the post-hearing briefs. And the administrative judge, law judge stated, concluded from that, that Eastern Gas had abandoned the defense. And again, it's possible that that was an intentional decision. 
in order to uh, move on to arguments that they thought were better supported by the evidence. But, but it is important, it serves as an important lesson given that it was addressed in a footnote by the judge to be mindful to look back at your pleadings and make sure that all of your defenses are preserved at trial and in post-hearing briefs. The second thing I'd say is training matters. It's a question of, uh, on one hand, preventing injuries and illnesses or reducing incidents and even near misses. And it's on another hand, serves as evidence that that there's a policy that it's taken seriously and that, uh, that the employer uh, uh, has a safety and health program that's, that is an operating and living sort of program. But on the other hand, the training material will serve as evidence of the recognition of a hazard uh, or recognition of good practices. And so it's important that it be more than just a program that's written up and trained on, but that, that the second half of that is the monitoring uh, and the corrective actions uh, to make sure that employees continue to follow their training or, or, or live up to the, the practices that they are trained on. Um, Eastern Gas, one more thing I'd say is Eastern Gas raised the argument that they're not, the ANSI standards should not be demonstrative of industry recognition of a hazard because Eastern Gas is in the gas transmission and storage industry. It's not in the tree felling industry and that ANSI standard applies to the tree felling standard uh, industry. The administrative law judge rejected that and stated that once you routinely and regularly engage in tree felling, you're in that industry. It may not be your primary uh, business model, but it is nevertheless something that you're engaged in on a regular basis. And therefore you're in the industry for the purposes at least of following industry standards. Um, so I think that that's an important observation on the part of the administrative law judge. It really puts an end to that argument. I don't think it was a strong one anyways, uh, nor do I suspect that Eastern Gas believed it was a strong argument, but without knowing for sure. But I, I do think it's important to apply as a takeaway item here. I would suggest that the takeaway item is in every activity in which an employer is engaged, it's important for them to understand what their best industry practices are, who are the standard setting organizations that are speaking to the kind of tasks that an employer is engaged in, and to make sure that you've implemented a uh, safety program for that task that's relevant to or compliant with those industry standards, not just occupational safety and health administration standards. So that, that's probably one of the most valuable takeaways that I think uh, members can walk away with from today's program. I completely agree, Manish. And also, I think this last point here is also key that, you know, jobs should start with a pre-task briefing, I, you know, often referred to as a toolbox talk or, or a safety overview or a tailgate talk. Um, and th th this should happen before equipment is assigned and before the staff depart for the task. Um, in the ALJ's opinion, it's actually noted that, you know, Eastern Gas had a general job, you know, safety brief form that employees completed, um, but it was just a broad checklist for all jobs and that it didn't identify any specific procedures for tree removal work. Um, so essentially, you know, the, the training materials that, that Eastern Gas developed, as you mentioned, you know, they refer to this ANSI standard, but these specific guidelines and protocols, um, you know, in this, this pre-job safety brief that they did, you know, didn't, didn't mention them at all. Um, and so really connecting the dots, like, like you were talking about, between what, what's in your training and what you're briefing on the employees before they go out to complete the task is, is really key. 
Well, Taylor, you have the last word on today's OSHA 3030. I'm happy for that because I think that was an important point. Uh, That's a a wrap for today's OSHA 3030. This program will be up on our website, khlaw.com OSHA 3030 in the next day or so. Uh, We also will uh, reproduce it as a podcast and we'll put it on uh, our website and as well on YouTube. So feel free to check it out, but also subscribe as a podcast. And remember, if you listen to the OSHA 3030 on YouTube or as a podcast to rate or like the program so that it's more easily found by others looking for safety and health content. Uh, You can join us on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Our next program will be on Wednesday, January 19th, 2022 at 1 p.m. Eastern time, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And we'll send out announcements by email to to notify you of that. And we'll also send out another email allowing you to pre-submit any questions for the the off the record section that we do after the OSHA 3030. That's right. And we also encourage you to register for our sister programs, uh, the TOSCA 3030. Uh, which will be held uh, next on January 12th, uh, 2022, and the REACH 3030, uh, which will be held next on February 9th uh, of next year, and the FIFRA 3030. Uh, so stay, stay tuned for the next scheduled session of that program. Well, thank you all for participating this month's Social 3030. We look forward to seeing you next month. We'll stay here after we turn off the recording and chat with the live audience uh, for any questions and answers that they may have and ones that have been pre-submitted. And for those of you who are tuning out from the Off the Record, we look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe.